Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week, we're chatting with Nathan Prasad, who's the founder of Envision Property. He's a buyer's agent based in Brisbane. We dive into his background and how he became a buyer's agent after working in the construction estimating space. And he's generous enough to share his story around his first investment property, which is a little bit of a disaster. And we move through all sorts of different concepts and focus in on the off-market properties, which is a bit of a specialty of his. And he shares some really interesting insights about the pitch you make to vendors who are selling off-market and how that can help you get that property across the line. It's a great interview with Nathan, which I hope you'll enjoy. Here's Nathan. Nathan Prasad, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thanks, Mike, for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, Nathan, for anyone that hasn't perhaps come across you before, can you start us off with who you are and what you specialize in? Well, um, to summarize it is, you know, uh, before before I became a buyer's agent, I was working in the construction space as an estimator uh, for the past seven years. And then I moved from that role into being a buyer's agent, specifically in Brisbane. So, I'm finding properties across Brisbane for investors, developers, and families. Beautiful. And we are going to dive all into that, especially with a bit of a focus on the off-markets as well, which I know is a bit of specialty of yours. To to give us some background into Nathan, what posters were on the bedroom wall growing up? Um, um, I'm just trying to think of it. Maybe (laughs) posters, nice cars. Cars, right. Right, yeah. And uh, I'll be pretty girls. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I'll be stalking you on Facebook to see what you drive, but um, yeah, we'll probably leave it at the cars. Um, How did you get started in property and what was your first investment? Mate, oh, I like, I I come from a a pretty poor background. Mm -hmm. So, like, my mom, most of my family don't own properties. So, from a young age, I just wanted to, to get rich. And I guess it's it's that cliche, like you look at like Robert Kiyosaki and all those big influences and a lot of them got rich from real estate. So that's what really sparked my interest in property. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, by the time I was sort of 21, I was able to save up I think around $20,000 to buy my first property. Awesome. And, and that was one over in Baronia Heights, which is in southeast Queensland. Wow. Wow. Okay. And I, I want to talk about the story of the first one but when you sort of said you you know you you grew you grew up poor um i'm i'm detecting a bit of a kiwi accent and you've got an indian sort of sounding name i'm interested to unpack the background there and and really was rich just kind of like a materialistic thing or was it just really to sort of extricate yourself from the 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 environment as a kid um i guess you were you know even as a child you 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 could tell that people around you had more was that sort of where your mindset was that or was it all about the the ferraris and the and the hot chicks mate it's it's quite a like to dive into that it's a bit of a it's a bit of a um, funny one like we we never owned a car so to go a bit further back my parents split up when i was 7 mm-hmm. and then from there me my mother and my siblings we moved house like four to five times 
until we finally settled, settled in a small town called Levin. But, you know, through that process, you know, we were getting money from the government. We never really had much money, so we never even owned a car. So as soon as I turned 13 and I was able to, um, you know, my grandparents said I could come live with them. That was me. I straight on a plane over to Australia and um, I guess it's that whole um, that whole mentality. It makes you hungry. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, that, that's, where I, that's where I came from. I just, it was just purely just from not having anything that made me very hungry to learn and figure out how, how can I make – how can I build wealth for myself so then my children never have to go through that? Yeah, that, that's awesome. And I, I find those sorts of motivations inspiring when people do achieve um, success. We've gone, we've gone pretty deep. Um, <laughs> I feel like we need to have you reclined on a couch or something. My, my mother is actually a psychologist, so you're, you're sort of by proxy in safe hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jump, jumping into that first purchase. So you you saved, uh, I think you said twenty grand. You bought your first property, uh, twenty one, were you? Yep. Yeah, and 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 you've sort of mentioned before that you felt a bit strong armed into buying that one. So that 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 was where the agent was kind of convincing you that this was the property to go into. Did did they sort of push you a little bit into that one? Yeah. Well, the problem there was. To start off, I only had a budget of three fifty, mm-hmm. and I was looking at properties. And the second inspection I went to, the agent said, "Hey, I've got this other property. It's got a four bedroom, two bath, and had a granny flat, and it was for four hundred thousand. Um, once he took me through that property, I got emotionally attached to it, and he's mm. seen that, and then that was pretty much the cue. He was able to use, <laughs> he was able to use that to get me to. You know, I fell in love with it, and I ended up buying it for four hundred thousand. Little did I know that it had been sitting on the market for four months. Right. Yeah. So, very important lessons for you to learn to, uh, I guess, work on your trade craft to becoming a much more sophisticated property investor, and now someone that advocates on behalf of your clients. I'm guessing. Yes. Uh, <laughs> leave leave the the emotions at the door. Especially if it's for investments. When you were looking at that that first property, w- were you sort of convinced on property investing in general? Was that that sort of the idea? I need to get an investment property and build the portfolio and 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 you know get to the point where I don't live the same way as I, I grew up and become financially secure, or was it just a little bit simpler than that? Oh, it's just that whole the whole Australian dream, you know. You, you want to get your first property, and you don't know. <laughs> I, I literally brought the property in the in the suburb that I was renting, and so I didn't do any research on the suburb. And um, I'm also just I just brought it with no plan, no game plan on like how I was going to buy my next property, and that's how I kind of got into the ditch. Like I brought the most expensive property in the suburb. And um, as you know, from a quantity surveying point of view, it's a bit tricky to leverage off that to buy your next property. Mm. And what was the outcome with the unapproved granny flat? So you you sold that property and I think you did reasonably well in the end. How did you get yourself out and what were the challenges there? Um, <laughs> the funny story, yeah, with the, with the granny flat, you know, I was a first home buyer and I didn't realise that the building and pest inspector 
it's not within his scope to check if the the granny flat certified. Right. Um, so yeah, through the process, I purchased the property, and then within a two weeks later, the the old owner turned up to the property with the certified forms. So while I was buying the property, he was actually getting it certified. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I was that. That was how I found out it wasn't certified. Right. When he rocked up. So he did actually. He did actually manage to get it certified for you. Oh yes. I said, "What are these?" Oh, and he goes, "Lucky." Yeah. He's like, "Mate, you're lucky. We just got this certified. It was through the going through the process when you were buying it." And ouch. Yes. Oh yeah. And at oh, the end of the day, the, 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 yeah, I did dodge a very big bullet there. And at the end of the day, the sales agent's working for the seller. Mm. You know, at no stage did they inform me that it wasn't certified. Yeah, and I, I think some of the the blame should go on your solicitor and conveyancer as well to check that the improvements to the property are certified. So obviously you didn't have a, a great team to help you with this transaction. No, I didn't, and um, it was my first purchase, so I had had no idea. Didn't know how what checks I needed to get done. Yeah, how important do you think it is for property investors to have some sort of mentor or a quality buyer's agent or advocate of some description to be on their side? I mean, obviously, you've you've shared some of the the horror stories of what can go wrong. Right, I, I think it's. Very important if you're a first home buyer. Um, I'm looking at property all the time and I see properties get purchased for like well over market value. Mm. Um, it's I think it's sometimes as simple as working out the right purchase price. The, the, the buyers are kind of left in the dark. You know, I ask, ask them a lot of time, how do you work out value in a property? And a lot of the time they say, I ask the selling agent. And I have to say to them, you realise that the selling agent's working for the vendor? Yeah. So <laughs> and you've only got to look at the, the national media around um, the, the, the pricing scandals, the over-quoting and under-quoting and all that sort of stuff to say, look, the selling agent maybe is not the best person, even outside of the obvious incentive to be working for the vendor, right? Exactly. And there's also those other sort of searches that they might miss um, yeah, for example, the granny flat or any sort of renovation that's been done, mm. just making sure those things are certified. Yeah, pretty important that uh, whatever you're buying is legally allowed to be there, isn't it? Um, so you you actually ended up selling that property for a profit, right? It was that um, was that the original strategy to to go in there, add value, and sell it, or were you basically thinking I need to get out of this as quick as I can? Um. Yeah, when I was living there, I really wanted to buy my second property. And because I purchased the property for $400,000 and the medium hash price in that suburb was $350,000, it was, it was going to be very hard to get the value up mm. from a bank's point of view because I had nothing to compare it to. So I knew okay, I needed to, to sell it to be able to buy my next property that I can renovate and build the equity from it. Yep. And that's why... That's what drove me to sell it. And so your sort of philosophy was basically to occupy and renovate the property, add value, and ideally keep that property and move on and do that again? That was the original philosophy. I, I really wanted to keep it and use it to buy my next property, but 
unfortunately, due to like buying the most expensive property in that suburb, it really um, was going to tie me down. Yeah, great news for the agent, perhaps setting a, a price record for the suburb. Not so great news for yourself, though. Oh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> and yeah, the funny thing is, I ended up uh, using that selling agent to sell the property. <laughs> right. And he, and he sold it to um, some investors from Tasmania. Well, that's good. I mean, obviously, you you benefited from him on the way out. But gosh, that, that's an interesting one. It sounds like you maybe had some sort of Stockholm syndrome you, by using the guy that sort of fleeced you in the beginning to sell oh, the property. Yeah, yeah. He got me again. <laughs> <laughs> he's a good negotiator. We need to get this guy on the show. Actually, no, he sounds a bit like a used car salesman. And that's <laughs> not really a... Not really what we want to promote. How would you characterize your investment philosophy these days, Nathan? Um, it, it really depends on the person. Um, I'm always looking for a value-add opportunity through investments, whether it's through um, maybe renovating it later in the future or subdivisions mm-hmm. or, or it could be adding townhouses to the back. So my philosophy is, is buying a property that, has a good rental yield with room to add value in the future or to manufacture growth. So you, there always needs to be a way to manufacture growth in the future. And do you look to capital growth in and of itself or is that sort of something that comes, uh, I guess, lower down on the list than actually being able to manufacture the equity? Um, it really depends on the person and the level of you know the, the deposit that they have and how low they can go with the rental yield. But most of the time, it, it's good to have a property that's covering the costs. Yeah, you know, covering covering the, the mortgage, covering the property management, just in case that person loses their job or anything like that. The property can still be self sustaining. Yeah. Now, before you jumped into the property investing world as your as your main career you you were actually in the construction estimating space how did you land in that sort of work and how did you find it yeah I, pretty much straight out of high school I'd, I'd done a traineeship as a cadet estimator mm-hmm. and I worked for a, a one of the biggest builders called plantation homes and it was it was um yeah it was a good little career I got to learn about all aspects of building, you know, which helps me in the estimating. Oh, and in the buyer's agent space. Yeah, I was, that, was, that was my sort of next question. It was how how much of a of a benefit is your background in, of course, understanding the construction costs for buildings, renovations, improvements when it comes to uh, the due diligence side of things for looking at a property, especially if you're wanting to manufacture equity. Oh, massive. Like, it's also, I, I help a lot of developers find sites around Camp Hill and Holland Park in the city suburbs. So, it allows me to work out if a site's feasible or not very quickly because yep. um, speed's a ma- massive factor when you, when you need to buy a development site. But to flip it as, as well, it's when we go look at properties for families the, the finishes throughout properties. Um, what we're finding in like Camp Hill and a lot of the inner city suburbs, there's some properties that are priced at a million dollars and they're not selling 
it's because the developers purchased the land for say six hundred thousand and they've only put a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar house on it. Yep. So really understanding the quality of the kitchen and the quality of the bathroom has that's I've been able to like add value to my clients through that. And that and is that the the sort of key technical background that you had was estimating the construction cost for residential dwellings. Yes, it was. So I'll get I'll get a block of land and I'll have to work out how much it will cost for the retaining, um, get soil reports, and then pretty much look at that and look at the site survey mm-hmm. to work out what slab they need to do. And yeah, really understanding how much it costs just to get the foundations. Yep. And then and yeah. So is there any other key advantages that you see having that technical background has given you when it comes to looking at investment properties? Yeah, it, it has because I I can I can get a very quick understanding on how much it will cost to to do the to do the kitchen, to to do the bathroom. Yeah. Um and also from the yeah the development point of view, just looking at the land and really looking at it, like if if there's a slope, just understanding you know it is possible, and it's roughly going to cost sixty to seventy thousand, and not not letting those those sites just slip away. Yeah. So really diving. There's in, yeah. There's obviously a, a an added expense in building on say a sloping site, and developers may just shy away because they think, oh look that that's just it's too hard to do the feasibility or we don't want to pay a quantity surveyor to do a you know a two or three thousand dollar estimate to find out that it's not going to be feasible you can look at that fairly quickly with your background to say look you know it's a sloping side but it's it's not too bad it's it's not going to blow the cost out too much mate yeah absolutely and probably another big thing too is uh because there's a lot of people that are in construction, but they already understand this. But you know, the location of the plumbing, um, the location of like structural walls, mm. just really understanding that and being like, oh, okay, we can, we could, like where this wall's located, I'm pretty sure it's not a structural wall. We can remove it and then we can, you know, create a fourth bedroom. Or the way that this house is designed, we can, we can add in an extra bathroom. Love it. Yeah. You, Obviously, exited that, turning your passion into a job, it seems like it. What what kept you excited about property after sort of getting burnt by the first one? Um, well, I ended up selling that property and I purchased one in Holland Park. Um, I went through the, the process of getting a, a DA for that. So I combined my house and the neighbor's house and we have DA to create a third block using the backyard. Right. So going through that process, um, it was a bit of an adventure. You know, I learned a lot more about the, the council and um, like how creativity plays a big part in property. You know, there's there's a there's so many ways you can make money from property and that's why I always find it quite passionate. <laughs> I get quite passionate about it. Because yeah, I, no. yeah, it's most like an art form. <laughs> and and obviously you transition from your own enthusiasm for property investing and, and adding equity and doing little um, 
backyard joint venture yeah. subdivisions with your neighbours. Um, what made you want to help individual in- investors to achieve similar su- successes with their property? The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. Well, because I went through all the hurdles myself, I definitely feel like there's a lot of people out there that could benefit from all the mistakes that I've I've made. Yeah, I, I definitely know that I can add value to your everyday mum and dad investors, or even um, people just looking to get into the market. And I've, I, I, I truly believe that you know that that the buyers are left in the dark. And there's no real support for them. So that's why I mm. I started the business. Brilliant. And I couldn't agree more. And certainly there's um, there's a, a certain lack of, of education amongst investors, or at least there must be because the average investor is still just buying the, the one property. So I think there's something at play there. We, we've talked about you your sort of stra- strategy is is definitely on the buying a property that can cover itself expenses wise and and find opportunities for an equity uplift with renovations or extensions I, I wanted to ask you about your bread and butter style property investment so obviously you're looking for the opportunity to do an uplift but are we talking houses units any particular areas where you're looking for these properties yeah, um, so we are looking around um, like location-wise specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're finding a lot over in the, the north Brisbane areas. Um, and if it's, a, if it's a bit of a renovation property, we're looking for sort of post-war homes. Mm-hmm. The nice, the very solid homes and um, you, can, you can renovate them or refurb them to get the, to get the rental yield right. Yeah, but later on down the track, the investor has the option to to lift that property out and build out underneath. Also, add a granny flat. Yep. So that's that's one of one of the styles we're looking at, and also a lot of um, properties that you can buy and hold with the option to to subdivide it in the future. Mm-hmm. And what is it about? North Brisbane, is it something to do with the market itself or the demographics or is it just that that's where the concentration of those houses on the on the bigger blocks that can be subdivided are? Yeah, it's about that price point. Right. Um, between sort of 500 to 600,000 where you're still able to get a, you know, $500 a week um, and you're getting close to that 5% rental yield. That's one of the main focuses of looking around the um, North Brisbane. Another fo- another reason is there's train lines running directly into the city, mm-hmm. so we're, we're really seeing a, a massive ripple effect. Um, Chermside, for example, about a year ago you could buy property for five hundred k, three bedroom, one bath. Now you can't get one for under six hundred k. Right, and then we're seeing that ripple effect get pushed out even further. 
and that's same on the other side in, in Mitchelton and Capera. Um, those medium house prices are getting close to 700000 So those first home buyers are now going further out to, to Fernie Grove and Arana Hills. And for people that aren't as familiar with the Brisbane locale as yourself, how far kilometre-wise are we talking from the CBD? Um, between uh, sort of 10 to 20 kilometres. Yep. So it's not very far from the Brisbane CBD. Yep. And through those suburbs, there are train lines that which will get you into the city within sort of less than an hour. Yeah, and I think that's the magic sort of sweet spot that people are prepared to commute, although who knows what will happen in the post-pandemic world. We've done terribly well to not be talking about COVID-19 <laughs> for the first 20-odd <laughs> minutes, but I, I have to ask the question because being based in, in Brisbane or, or, or Queensland in, in general, there's a, there's been a few stories about how the pandemic has, has impacted properties in Queensland. There's been a lot more interest. Obviously, that's a better price point. There are some people living in uh, expensive suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne and thinking, look, if I'm going to get locked down, I at least want to be warm. Yeah. Um, so the Gold Coast market's doing well. How, how have you seen inquiry change uh, since the pandemic began? Um. A lot of our clients at the moment are locals. Um, the, the the with the borders being closed, I am talking to a couple of people in Melbourne, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they can't come and inspect the property. So I've got two people that are looking to move into state. If that answers your questions, and and looking at, at the data, we're having like a large percentage um, of people from Sydney and Melbourne moving to to Queensland. And their their feedback is just the it's the price. Yep. You know, they can sell up there, buy a nice property in Brisbane and still be left with some money. And do you think that's going to be, uh, I guess, a bit of a perennial driver for property prices in Brisbane, just that the, the sheer fact that it's about half of, of what it would cost you in Sydney and Melbourne for a similar style property? Um, I think it would be a factor... But the, just the local market itself, mm-hmm. there's a very high demand. There's just not enough stock at the moment. Yep. So I'm not too sure if it's due to there's like there's a, a drop in buyers. Um, I'm not ex- sure exactly what's going on, but there's just there's just not enough stock, and I think that's why the market's still going in an upwards trend in Brisbane. Yeah, yeah. and I guess. Houses are a bit different to units, right? Because there's been a lot of unit stock come on uh, on board, and I don't know the area as well as you, but I'm assuming that there's not that many new housing developments coming into the into the Brisbane area within you know ten or fifteen kilometres of the city, right? Yeah, there's 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 not too much houses coming to market. You, you are correct, and and the whole um, Brisbane and Queensland sort of mentality is everybody wants to own a house. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, very worst case scenario. You end up in a unit or a townhouse. So I think, yeah, that's, an- yeah, that's families will go three, four suburbs out just to still own a house. Yeah, that's an interesting insight, and I think it'll be interesting to see what happens if if Australia as a nation tends to more adopt the the high rise style living as they do in you know Southeast Asia and places like that. 
I want to change direction with you focusing on the off-market stuff. So if you go and, and Google yourself, check out your website, which I recommend everybody does, um, you have a big focus on the relationships that you build and mature and, and nurture with agents, I should say. Um, I've pre- previously sort of said on the podcast that the off-market sales are a bit of a beat-up, a bit of a marketing gimmick sometimes. Um, obviously, that's a big part of you do what you do is sourcing off-markets. Where where do you land on that? Um, the last two purchases I've done have been off-market and the the reason why it was so much better to get it off-market was that with these two scenarios, we had no competition. So it was literally me and the agent just negotiating a price and then we're able to buy and these both properties we purchased were in Holland Park, one of the most sought-after suburbs in, in Brisbane, yeah. and we were able to buy them below market value. Like we got one for 890000 and if it went to market, it would have sold for between nine fifty to nine eighty any day of the week. But it was purely because we were able to find it off market. That that one took three months to put together. We were able to put a contract in front of the the seller, and we gave him three months to go find his next property. We gave him a big deposit and flexible terms, and then that allowed us to buy it at a sort of between fifty to eighty thousand dollars below market value. So that's that's the power behind finding something off market. That's a really interesting one because there was the price, right? It's below market, but it sounds like the uh, vendor paid for the flexibility, which was part of your pitch uh, for one of a better term. So you're basically saying, we'll, we'll buy your property for this. Here's some extra time to, to have the security to find something else. Here's a bit of an extra deposit because the bank's probably going to look favorably on that. Do you think that's an important part of your negotiation with the off-markets is to actually put an offer to them that's worth a bit more than just the price? Oh, 100%. Um, we just, the second one we just closed today in Holland Park and we just went in cash unconditional. So it was a deceased estate. Yeah. We worked that out. Um, we worked out this sort of, it's getting split up between five people. They wanted... 720 for it but we said hey we can give you 690 cash unconditional 30 days settlement and because we had no competition at this stage we were were able to present that contract and they took it um is it just and i I think it would be purely just for convenience Mm. yeah i guess in that situation the the parties are probably just wanting to to move on from that transaction but Typically, for what reasons are people selling off market when there's a, a bit of a notion that it's not the best way to achieve the maximum price? Um, so my strategy is always trying to find families that are thinking about selling and starting mm-hmm. the conversation there. Um, because I haven't paid for marketing and I haven't had any open for inspections, um, they might not necessarily know how much their property's worth. Right. Um, and as you know, I'm working for the buyer. So my goal is always to buy it at the, at the lowest price. So that that's where, where it works out. But um, it doesn't always work out like that if you want to yep. go into that point. So you think, it's, you think it's a bit about 
people not necessarily wanting to deal with agents. They don't want people, you know, tramping through their house. And if they get given a deal, even if they think, oh, look, it might be a little bit under what the market value is, but I don't have to go through the hassle. Yes, that's it. It's it's um, not going through the hassle. And it, it comes down to negotiating. So mm-hmm. each, each situation is different. And um, I guess you, your everyday buyer is probably not skilled in the negotiating spot, spot but it's really understanding what, they, what they're trying to achieve. And sometimes it's more about the flexibility um, rather than the money. Yeah. Now, you gave me, I'm going to have to say, a mildly sort of politician-style answer to the question of whether um, it is a bit of a media beat up with these off-market sales. Do you, <laughs> do you think it is necessarily true that you're likely to get a better deal with an off-market sale than an on-market one? Um, no, that's 100% not true. So I, for every sort of 10 off-market properties, I might find one that's decent. Right. Because I do so they're this- not the gold mine that, that people sort of make them out to be sometimes. Or they can be the gold mine, but you have to spend a lot of hours trying to find them and a lot of hours on the phone. And that sort of begs the question, what are the secrets to having Asian agents cut, cut you in on these juicy deals? Is it just a matter of they want to be able to make a sale quickly and if they think Nathan's probably got a back pocket full of people ready to press the trigger, then I better keep him on my uh, speed dial list? Uh, yeah, and it's it's knowing that when they deal with me, I'm not going to muck them around. I'm yeah. serious. Um, I'm going to get them a contract when I say I'm going to get them a contract and, you know, they've already built rapport with me and in most cases have transacted with me already. Yeah. And that's what, the, that's what they, that's why they're like, do they want to deal with 100 buyers and have three of them talk to them nasty or can they just deal with Nathan and get it sorted? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting incentive that the selling agents have, of course. They've, they would be getting paid presumably a percentage of the purchase price. Uh, the more they sell it for, the, the better the result for them. But I guess they also don't want to go to the ends of the earth to find that extra couple of grand if they can get it across the line quickly and everyone's happy. Is that, is that where you think they land? Yeah, as bad as it sounds, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound a little bit sketchy. Yeah. Not not all agents are like that. And that's when when you start looking for real, est- real estate, you start to understand which agents you want to work with and which ones, you know, uh, are transactional agents. Yeah. And which ones you would want to sell your house with yourself. Exactly. <laughs> but for someone that's, say, selling their, their property, could you give us maybe some some tips on how to find the agents that aren't just focused on the on the transaction. Are there good questions to ask them as part of their listing presentation, for example? What what I would recommend is is looking at how many listings they already have. Yeah. Um because this is what I find like there's there's agents that they're really good at selling the service. But it's just first first step will always be to look at how many listings they have and how big is their team? If they've got like 30 listings and they don't even have a, a sales assistant, I probably wouldn't even talk to them as bad as that sounds. 
um, because you have to think they'll, they'll, they're trying to sell 30 properties. How are they going to spend the time and effort on your one property? Mm. Oh, you go. Sorry, sorry, I'll let you finish. I was going to say I would always suggest trying to go for somebody that doesn't have too many listings because they're going to be very hungry to get the deal across the line. That's an interesting one because it sort of flies in the face of what we would normally assume is the right strategy, i.e. if this person's got 30 listings, then obviously they're a deal maker, they're a mover and a shaker. But, yeah, if someone's perhaps starting out or got a little bit less on, they actually may um, they may not necessarily have as much experience, but determination is maybe sometimes better than experience, would you say? Oh, Hunger, yes, 100%, because they're going to aim to get the most for that property so then they can use that property to get more listings. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Now, focusing back on the property market in Brisbane, and I know it's a relatively big place. Um, There's probably markets within markets, as everyone always tells me. What's your crystal ball telling you about the Brisbane property market over the next six or 12 months? Um. It's 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 a hard one to say because you know we all thought that it was going to slow down in September. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it's driven around uh, the job keeper and the job seeker, yeah, and the, the freezing of the loans because I'm talking to a lot of buyers all the time, and that's that's what really determines their their decision making. You know, a lot of them are waiting until after job keeper and job seeker. So I I have a feeling that. Once that once that happens and they remove those, we're going to see a flow of more buyers. Um, so for every property, there's normally four to five buyers trying put putting in offers on these properties. Um, I, I can't see that that much stock coming to market that quickly. Yeah. So I, I honestly feel like the market's still going to keep going the way it is, even after they remove those. And do you think that once we get past that? September job keeper and I know we've got that extended but there'll be less people that or get less businesses that will qualify for the the turnover um, changes um, being the I think negative 30% for the September quarter do you, do you think that that's that's likely going to have a few more people unemployed minimizing the the demand for property or we're going to see distressed sales? What are you thinking? I'm thinking the, the suburbs that have a larger percentage of investors' stock. So, like, with – I can see a lot of investment properties coming to market soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the suburbs that are more sort of 70 to 80% owner occupies, I feel like those suburbs aren't going to see as big of a hit as the ones that have – more sort of 60 to 70% of investors. And it, it's quite easy. You can easily work out the percentage of investors by using sort of RP data or investor. Yep. They, they tell you within each suburb what percentage are owned by investors and what percentage are owned by families. And the rationale there is that an investor might think, look, this property is going nowhere or I'm worried about vacancy. I think it's time to sell. And they don't have to rebuy. But if you're an owner-occupier, you, you've got to live somewhere. I'm assuming that people aren't going to want to sell their house to move into a rental. They've got to go somewhere else. And if the market's a little bit poor, they don't want to sell 
for a loss or at a low price. So that's going to keep the prices pretty stable in these owner-oc dominated suburbs. Is that um, is that the economics of it? Yes, spot on. Like you think a family, they've just lost their job, they've just lost everything, and now they don't even have an income to service a new mortgage. I think they're going to hold on to their house quite tightly. It's going to be the only thing that's going to be left. And then if the banks try to push them out of their homes, I feel like that's just not going to happen with the government. The government are going to be supporting, they're going to be pushing the banks to support, make sure that the families stay in their homes. Yeah, look, let's hope so. Now, for for people that are looking at investing in property and wanting to to take advantage perhaps of some of the opportunities out there, you mentioned before you saw sites for, for developers but what sort of services do you offer property investors? Um, for property investors, I normally sit down and have an initial like strategy strategy session where I'm trying to work out you know what what they're trying to achieve and what their long term goals are. From there, we can then work out you know what's what's going to be their best first property purchase, and. Um, yeah, it goes it goes from there. I, I then go out and I help source the property, evaluate it, negotiate and secure it. Beautiful. Then one, yeah, and then, for example, I'm, I'm helping a client that I purchased on my property last year in Arana Hills, and we were lucky. We got there before the herd did, and he got, uh, got $80,000 worth of equity in one year, which is just crazy results. And now I'm helping him find his second property. So it's a bit of a journey. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I guess, and that's an important thing for property investors is to is to start with the strategy, uh, and then the property will, will will fit into that. I guess, Nathan, for people that are wanting to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? The best way would be just through Facebook. Yep. Type in there, uh, my name Nathan Prasad or Envision Property. And uh, send me a message or otherwise uh, visit the website, www.envision, with an I, property.com.au. Beautiful. Nice and easy. Now, Nathan, for for the last part of the interview, I, I want to know if there's one piece of advice that you could impart to investors, what would it be? Do your research, like... Make sure when you when you go to buy that that investment property, you just you just do a bit of research on the suburb, and and a bit of research on the purchase. <laughs> look at look at the comparable sales. And look at how much you're buying it for, and just make sure you do your research because it, it's going to be one of the biggest investments you make. You're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. Yeah, and you learned that lesson the hard way yes. as a 21 year old too, right? <laughs> yeah, speaking from experience. Exactly, and don't get emotional. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thanks very much for, for sharing the wisdom. Mate, thanks for having me, Mike. <laughs>